Hi, this is Frank, the co-host of the show. Just a quick advertisement and we'll get started. The show is brought to you by Viral Marketing, which is my firm, and Chris Waters, who offers a way to scale his real estate team systems fast and profitably in your market. I mean, he's done over a thousand transactions a year in Austin. It's a business in a box, if you will. Anyway, I encourage you to go to getviral.com and download a free copy of our official video marketing plan that we recommend uh, you implement to stay in better touch with your database uh, using video and social media and email so more people call you to list their home. I also want you to go to themilliondollarrealestateteam.com and get yourself a free copy of Chris's book he wrote on how he earned after expenses, this is net profit, $1 million in only three years since starting his team. So that's it. No more commercial. And let's get to the show. One, two, three, go. Roll. All right, do it. The Listing Lead Show. So welcome back to the Listing Lead Show, where all we want to talk about is what people are doing to get listings and get right to the point. Uh, the guest today is going to blow your mind, and he blew my mind when I heard what he was doing. Uh, Phoenix, as we all know, is a very competitive market. It's basically where every disruptor that's trying to marginalize the real estate agent in some way or another goes to test out their idea because the market is huge in Maricopa County and uh, fairly homogenous. So it's pretty easy to use like valuations that way. So our guest today, Dan Noma, um, comes from an institutional investor background and has bought real estate at a very large scale. Uh, what most, most of us listening here have kind of come up through the residential real estate ranks. Uh, just starting off going on listings on our own at a brokerage to get started. Uh, Dan has come in through the institutional side and kind of has a very unique perspective on everything coming from that paradigm than your, just to say, your typical realtor. So case in point, uh, Dan last year and his company Venture REI that uh, operates under Easy Street Offers as DBA in Phoenix uh, did 1,800 deals last year. And I believe the majority of those are sellers and listings. So we're going to get into how the heck you even do that. Of 1,800 deals. But also, just before we started recording the podcast, he was telling us how they're buying currently 25 homes a day, uh, which is right up there with the volume, I believe, of Open Door. Is that correct, Dan? So that's a pretty impressive resume. So to come on to the Listing Lead Show and to share what you're doing to get listings is really cool. And I think where I like to start the interview off, like I always do, is what are the top ways you're getting listings? I think there won't be anything new you're sharing. You're just spending a lot of money to do this well with a good message. But I also want to get into this story of like how you kind of ended up to where you are. So just for the sake of the show of how we run everything here, what are the top ways you're getting listings? Give us like the top three. Yep. So uh, first is uh, is we have a little call center in office. So we we do uh, direct dials to to homeowners, and so we use our CRM, you know, for text, email. Uh, voicemail drops, as well as direct calls to to homeowners and, you know, kind of predictive tools to figure out who's most likely to sell and just reach out to those consumers. Uh, direct mail has always been a, a big piece of our business. So we send, you know, a ton of direct mail. And so that's been a big one. And, and I'll tell you guys, it actually works. Um, we've done executed really well. And then third is, uh, you know, media. And so the media that we use is um, radio and television. And so television in the last 24 months has really kind of been uh, been a leader for us in getting getting new leads into the office. Maybe a fourth strategy as well. Is there a fourth one we could throw in there for you? Um, 
let me think here. I mean, we, we obviously run like digital Facebook and, and all of those things. I would say like of the, of the four, that's our least converting, um, you know, long, more long tail leads that way. But, uh, you know, we, we really try to focus on those that are raising their hands first and try to execute with those people. So you started in real estate when Dan, uh, did you in the game? Yeah. So I got my real estate license when I was 18. So I've actually been doing this now. This is 20 years of this stuff, man. But you've been doing most of this by representing hedge funds that want to come in and purchase a lot of homes at scale, right? Right. Yeah. So I was the first broker for Invitation Homes. So when uh, you know Invitation was born, it was born here in Phoenix, and one of my clients was the principal, and he came to me with this idea that he was going to turn single-family homes into publicly traded REITs, and I kind of told him he was nuts and uh, didn't think it was going to work. And then, you know, he, he went out, he took like a broken model that we had created to Blackstone. He raised $40 million and that was invitation fund one. And we bought that year, we purchased 2000 homes in Maricopa County. And you were responsible for overseeing that? Yeah, all the acquisitions. So we've, you know, we've since graduated into not just acquisition, we're doing full vertical services, which are like renovation, lease up and property management for the institutions. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, Figuring out ways that we could buy, you know, get in front of, you know, not hundreds, but thousands of consumers to get our message across was uh, was a quick learning curve, but I had to make. We just had to figure so, out ways to do it. Let me get this straight. So someone came to you with, Dan, I have $40 million to buy a lot of property. What's the plan to get homeowners to call us to go out and buy these things? And you had to come up with that? Yeah, we had to figure that out. So the... You know, initially we thought, well, you know, we'll just start buying off the MLS. And so that's that's where it started. And we started clipping off the MLS. And then the appetite, as we were able to get, you know, a lot of a lot of offers accepted that way, the appetite continued to grow. And then, you know, they really leaned on us for off market and like how do we get who do we get in front of and how what message do we need to deliver that customer to to make a direct offer to them. So, you know, I always like to say in Phoenix, we were kind of the open door before there was an open door. We were providing those instant offers. It was just coming from an institution rather than, uh, than an iBuyer at that time. What a crazy problem to have, Dan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was a while. And were you, were you a, a independent agent before that? Just like a regularly yeah. selling real estate? Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I had some REO business and uh, had done a lot of short sale you know, we've, we've always focused on the investment space, but, um, but yeah, I would say, you know, I mean, in a normal year, I was probably doing a hundred, 150 transactions a year. I mean, it wasn't like I was doing thousands before the institutional game started. So I guess here's my, the question just comes to mind. Phoenix is like one of the most competitive markets for real estate, especially now, not just among realtors, but also upon all the institutional money. When you drive down there, you can't drive down any interstate or any road without some billboard of someone trying to, you know, motivate a homeowner to call them to get to sell their house. But your market share, you were telling us before the podcast is currently what of all the homes? So we, we calculated last week. So we combined our, our market share with open doors. Just we wanted to compare and see like what an instant offer was doing in our market. So us and open door combined, we, we combined for a 28% market share in Phoenix last week. <laughs> It's incredible. How many homes are for sale right now in Phoenix? Do you know? Uh, I think there's like total market wide. I think we're looking at like 3000. The prediction was that instant offers would occupy about a 10% market share in each city across the U S sounds like that's nearly triple what was anticipated instant offers to uh, take from a market share perspective. Do you see that continuing? 
I do, man. I mean, I I can tell you, like the game is the game of instant offer changed significantly, um, especially with groups like Open Door, due to cost of capital, right? So when they first came to market, you guys may remember, they were charging like their fee was was fifteen percent, right? And now they're down to a two percent fee, and you know, and their offers have gotten significantly better, right? So they're like, I I actually went on a training appointment with a list with an agent the other day. And um, I presented an open door offer that was greater than what I could list it for on the retail market or felt comfortable listing it for on the retail market. And that, that wasn't happening, you know, a while back. So it's, I think their access to capital has gotten cheaper and then uh, there's more of it. And therefore they, that's a, that's a problem that these big institutions have. They've got to spend it. You know, it's actually when it's parked, that's the biggest problem that they've got. So they're all betting on the appreciation. It's not the cash flow because you had mentioned before the show started, you're helping institutions buy properties at a $450,000 sale price. They lease out for $2,400. I mean, your cap rate on that is like horrendous. So I'm assuming it's just everybody's betting on the appreciation. Is that accurate? You know, it's uh, it's kind of a mix, mixed bag. I mean, I, I think if there's only one institution that we represent here in Phoenix that'll actually say that they are betting on appreciation. Um, but it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the institutional bad word. They don't like to actually say that they're betting on, on appreciation. It's kind of like, that's the money that comes as a result of buying these homes. Um, you know, the reality is we're buying a three and a half cap. That's, that's what we buy. And, you know, a three and a half cap doesn't leave us much room for, for error. But at the same time, when you've got a billion dollars and you're getting a three and a half percent return on a billion, it's still better than what they can get in you know, other markets. So the bond markets, the mortgage-backed security markets that all of these guys used to buy in, those markets have virtually dried up. So this is really just a play to get any kind of yield on their capital, right? So there's a ton of capital in these markets and they're just looking for yield. And so if you can provide them some sort of yield north of 3%, you're going to you're gonna see a lot of institutional money consider that as an option. I think what's interesting, Dan, maybe this is uh, naive of me to think, but there's so much money sloshing around that the return they don't even care about is that they just have to deploy it and use it because <laughs> it just can't, like Chris told me a while back, can't be left sitting in an escrow account and an absence of other deals when the stock market's so appreciated and so high, just to go out there and park it in the house regardless is a good deal when you're dealing with that amount of money. Yeah. I mean, that you know, I get the uh, the call all the time of like, you know, we've had a great month in market. And therefore, we've got extra money to deploy. How much more can you deploy? And um, you know, the reality is, I think that they're they just need to they they need to just like you said, deploy capital and and make sure it's not just sitting around. Um, in most cases, I think a lot of these groups have made significant returns in the market um, in the last couple of years, and they're kind of using house money to buy all of these all of these assets. Dan, if you're an agent. Broker, team owner, whatever, listening to the show right now, and you're wondering how do I get a hold of an institution to buy properties in my market? What would be your recommendation to somebody interested in tapping into a institutional buyer and uh, helping them uh, deploy some of their capital and acquire assets in their respective market? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you this. I think like the easiest way to do it, uh, is a couple of things. One, one is like, look at open door, right? So open door, 
is kind of the you know another another real estate agent uh, fearful word, but they're they're solid. And what what's happening at Open Door is they're starting to get the institutions to actually work with them. So groups like Progress Residential, uh, First Key Homes, they all use Open Door to 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 um, do their acquisitions for them. So if you guys are in an Open Door market where Open Door is operating, you know figure out the buy box that Open Door will buy in. And a lot of those assets are going to be gobbled up by the institution anyway. So the reason that these offers are getting so good from Open Door is it sometimes isn't actually Open Door buying the house. It's actually one of these institutions that's buying through Open Door to, to make the offer. So I think that you know the path of least resistance, I would say, is, is start with them. You know, get, figure out the buy box in your market from an Open Door rep, and you know, happy to connect anybody to, to those guys. Um, you know, what I always say is like it's just it's like you know. If, like Chris, I know you're in Austin. If I had a referral for you and it was my uncle and he had a billion dollars, he was coming to Austin to buy houses. I think you'd probably take the referral, right? And the same holds true in any market of these guys is that, you know, they, they simply just want to buy houses. So if you can find the assets that fit into their buy box, they'll buy them. So I would start there. The other way to look at is, you know, there, there's an institutional representative in pretty much every market. Um, you know, and so if you can, locate that institutional representative or you know if you guys reach out through the show i can happy happy to connect you to who that is in that market um you know that person's always looking for assets and so it, you know making making the connection to those guys is, is is probably easier than you think that would be a solid connection is having a relationship with the institutional representative in a market that's really helpful all right so let's get into uh listing leads you had to go out to the masses at scale to get people to raise their hands saying they're interested in selling their home i already know what the answer is to the question but i think i want to ask it for the audience of maybe how you arrived to the answer with regard to the message so what are some of the messages you tried some of the messages you failed at and why which ultimately leads to the message you use in your commercial and on the phone and in your direct mail pieces. Yeah. So the, um, you know, we've, we've tried, you know, all your kind of traditional messaging, right? So, you know, list with the, you know, we use the Noma group or we would use easy street offers, you know, list, list with us. We're the greatest game in town, right? It was kind of that same message. And here's all the reasons that make us awesome. And then we would even try to lead with data and say, okay, here's the, you know, here, here's what the market conditions look like. Here's what we think your property's worth. And, you know, give us a chance to list the property and we're going to wish and hope that we can find a buyer for you. So we that was all the, the work that we had tried to do. And then it wasn't until we kind of eclipsed the idea that we should present them with a different opportunity and say, look, I've got a buyer that wants to buy your house. So our message out to consumers today is that we we actually have an offer. We have a buyer that wants to buy your property. Um, and we've now even taken that a step further and saying that we have multiple buyers that are interested in making an offer on your property. And so we consider ourselves almost like the travelocity of real estate. So when, when a consumer comes into to our environment, um, they submit the property to us, we give them all available options in the market, which includes the iBuyer offers, the, I, the offers from our institutional clients, and their go-to-market option. And we present all of those in a side-by-side format to the customer so that they can uh, have a very transparent look at what all their available options are and make an educated decision that's best for them and their family. That seems like common sense. 
Why is that not so common, Dan? I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, I think that agents have been hung up. Like, I think the biggest aha for me was looking at looking at really studying Open Door and and the other iBuyers in my market. I, I know I'm I'm lucky to be in a market that these guys like all test in. Um, you know, I, I think like at some point in real estate, we all thought that customers wanted the most money in the shortest period of time, and that was the end all be all solution for every customer. And I think it wasn't until what these guys proved to me that that sometimes there's there's a subset of consumers that are willing to pay for some sort of convenience. And once I started focusing on these unique value propositions, right? Like when we present an open door offer, for example, we present the offer and we also mentioned that they've got this late checkout program where you can stay in the home post-closing for up to two weeks at no additional cost. And when I share that with customers, what I started to realize is that the customer actually like started to view the offer from Open Door a little bit differently because what it did is it solved a problem for them that they didn't even realize that they had. So had they sold their property traditionally, they could have ended up in a situation where they had to you know move out of one house, move into the next one same day, and do a simultaneous close. Whereas these guys solve for that stressor, right? And so I always kind of use myself as the as the as the piggyback here as like. I've got five-year-old triplets at home. So when I think about the idea of like picking up my house, getting it ready for sale, moving, and potentially moving twice in a real estate transaction, like that's 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 enough reason for me not to move. So I think that, you know, just thinking about these key consumer value propositions and solving these problems for these customers before they even know they have them has really changed the narrative of everything that we do. So we lead with these messages versus leading with any information about us. So like, you know, we win awards, trophies, 40 under 40, yada, yada, all this jazz, but none of it matters. I think ultimately what matters is what's in it for the customer. And if they feel like they can trust us, you know, so our process allows the customer to really, really trust us. You know, we give them 100% transparency and let them drive. And we just share all these options with them explain how they work. And you'd be, I'm just shocked at how many customers are willing to pay for some sort of convenience. They're leaving some equity on the table for some sort of convenience along the way. I think what's really interesting and insightful is you had a, you had a lot of confidence to solve the problem with your messaging of just, I straight up have a buyer call me for your house, or I have multiple buyers who want to pay you really good prices, not like your typical local 70% below market value investor. But I'm sure these institutional buyers go a little higher. Like you said, open doors coming in above market value now. What are the other what are the other non-open doors coming in at? Uh, yeah. How close to market value? Yeah, I currently? mean I, you know they're very competitive. So even OfferPad and Zillow have been 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 awful competitive with each other. Um, you know, I think I would say that Zillow in the upper price point is probably the the leader. Uh, anything north of like 450, it's probably Zillow that's leading that market. Uh, maybe the the lower end, that under 200 market, it's probably OfferPad, and then Open Doors filling the, the the need right in the middle there. Um, but they've all gotten really smart about the way that they're they're capitalized and the way that they're they're presenting these options to the customer. And it's you know every week there's a new gadget coming out of these companies that's solving for a certain consumer. And they know how to message that consumer directly. And they're just solving that customer's problem. It's, it's pretty simple. But you had the, like I said, you have the, um, the confidence going out with, I have buyers, not like an agent might have like, you know, a person. Yeah. And it's difficult to market a person as your typical, I have a buyer message, which is a very strong message. 
But with an institutional buyer, you can go entire countywide probably within a reasonable buy box and say, I have a buyer. And that's essentially what your TV commercial is. I mean, someone could go to, uh, you operate under easy street offers, right? That's your DBA. I, why don't you share with the audience that a little bit? Because the name of your brokerage is Venture REI, correct? Yep, Venture REI. But you yeah. realized that wasn't as the strongest name you could have used. So you formed a different name, right? We did, yeah. So so tell us about that decision of like, I, I shouldn't even market myself as a realtor. That's hurtful. Yeah, so we wanted some sort of like differentiator in market so that a customer didn't feel like they were going to get a call from a real estate agent. Like it just feels... It, it felt like us in our market that it was either that customers were getting um, options from like getting getting phone calls from real estate agents directly all the time and promoting themselves, just talking about themselves, or they were getting you know calls and emails and mailers from local wholesalers who were trying to buy properties at a discount. So what we tried to do with Easy Street Offers was you know differentiate ourselves a little bit. Um, I didn't want a customer. I mean, while we're compliant, you know, our website you know, remains. MLS compliant and all of those things. But um, when they land on our page, it, it really looks like an instant offer page, right? It looks like a, an open door type of type of page. And we've made it pretty easy for them to enter their their all of their contact information. It's a simple submission process. They submit to us. Um, they get an email right away that says, hey, we've received this. We'll get you an offer in 48 hours. Like we, we've tried to like systematize it to make it as simple as possible for a customer to get exactly what they came there for. Um, so for me, it was just about like, you know, I, I always say to people, like, I don't really care about my name and lights. I, I prefer it on checks. And so in this particular case, it, it really came down to that. It was just, look, I think that customers like, you know, we've, we've proven through in the travel industry that they wanted to go to Travelocity and Priceline and all these places versus just going direct to whatever, you know, whatever Hilton or whatever they wanted to go to. Why don't we try it in real estate and see what happens? And it works, you know. And so customers seem to be more likely to come to Easy Street Offers than you know the Noma Group, which is you know kind of our previous name or previous website. That took a lot of guts, man. I mean, you rebranded your entire company of all those years under Easy Street Offer. I don't know any other real estate agent or team in the entire country that has purposely rebranded their entire company as a doing business as trade name under something like that. You didn't hear that from anyone else. That was just your own empirical research and thinking what's best, right? Yeah. Yeah. We just dug in and gave it a shot, you know, so far so good. Wow. So Dan, what are you, what are you spending on uh, TV in Phoenix? What do you spend per month? So our, our, our TV radio spend ends up being about 45,000 a month between the two. Um, you know, direct mail, we send, you know, it depends on the flow we're looking for, but in a direct mail market, if we're probably in that 15,000 range and, um, and then, you know, our ISAs and calls and direct digital and all of those things, we probably have another 10,000 of expenses just in those as well. So, you know, all in we're 65 to 75 a month in, in marketing in our market. And how many cash offer or how many offer requests do you get on the 65,000 a month? Yeah. So we like, you know, like given day, we'll probably see somewhere between nine and 15, um, requests in a day. A day, seven days a week. Yep. So in a given month, what would you say that is? 12? 300, 300 leads roughly. Yep. Divided by 65,000. 
And and so it sounds like Dan, you're double ending all these deals. So you're, uh, you know, you're you're actually, you know, getting what nine hundred sellers on the hook, and then hooking them up um, on the buy side with an institutional buyer. Is that how your business kind of works? Fifty fifty. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, we never, we can never. Unfortunately, the institution doesn't let us represent both. So in our environment, if they if they come in. Um, I'm only representing the buyers, the buyer's broker, and the the seller would be coming in independently. So they'd be a, a for sale by owner. Um, but the beauty of our system, though, is like we the the institution pays our fee, so the seller doesn't actually pay anything for our instant offer. Um, so it looks to them like they just get a net offer, and that's that's exactly what they get. Um, so out of those eighteen hundred deals, how many of them were listed traditionally in MLS, and then how many were sold to institutions? So our normal and a normal flow, we're we're about sixty percent MLS heavy. So we're you know we're buying sixty percent of our inventory off the MLS, but about forty percent is through all of our other marketing efforts. So you're buying, you're making offers on. So eighteen hundred of the eighteen hundred of the deals you did, sixty percent of them came from making offers on stuff in the MLS. Wow, you're going to pretty strong offers in this market. Yeah, all cash closed now. So, like, literally, y'all are just submitting offers to agents on behalf of the institutions. Yeah, so that you know, it's kind of two two ways, right? So, first way of traffic is all of our outbound traffic, which would be just like our offers that are going out. So, in a given day, we'll make somewhere between eighty and one hundred offers in any given day. Um, So, we're making, you know, let's say we make eighty offers in a day; those are MLS offers. So, we'll we'll capture somewhere in that fifteen to twenty range just by doing that. And then the remainder come either like, you know, when our listing agents are running around and they're they're presenting all these options and a customer just picks up our instant offer. So they may want that instant offer that way. Uh, we also get agents that send us their opportunities in advance. So before they go on listing appointments, a lot of times they'll reach out to us and uh, and get an instant offer from us on their way to their to their listing appointment. And we're providing those options to them so that, you know, you know, what I like to say in that case is like, look, you're a listing agent. The the seller contacted you to sell your house. What's the harm in showing up with an offer for their house, right? Like, I can't see that being a problem. And so... As long as it's not a lowball offer. Yeah. And so agents leverage us all the time for for that as an instant offer. And then the rest would be, you know, more long tail leads, like people coming in through website, radio, television, wherever they're coming in. Um, just as those leads percolate, they would they would convert. The 60% of those deals through the MLS, who's the buyer? America's Homes for Rent? Yeah. So, you know, it 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 varies. So the, the way these institutions work is like they they have various funds set up underneath the under under their umbrella. Um, once the buy once the box is full for that particular fund, then they're kind of done with us and we move on to to a different group. And so we get poached uh, a couple different times a year into different things, but for now, you know, we represent uh, two two main buyers in Phoenix, or three, I should say, three. So one is American Homes for Rent. Uh, second one is Starwood. So just like the hotel group, Starwood, and then the third one is Pagaya. And so Pagaya is out of Tel Aviv and um, based in Tel Aviv, have offices in New York City, and uh, you know they've become really, really active in our market with uh, with really strong offers. Wow. Pagayo, and you said Tel Aviv, like in Israel. Tel Aviv in Israel. Yep. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tel Aviv in Israel. So Pagayo, uh, uh, Starwood, and America's Homes for Rent. 
Do you see any money coming over from China, Dan? You know, um, so there's a group that we represent in Boise, and it's called Asia Pacific Land, and uh, their their money is coming out of Asia. Hmm. Little bit of a unrelated question to getting listings. Um, you know, I, I <laughs> we, just, I've got, we just find this fascinating. I've I've got um, I I got a I had somebody send me a one of those Uslim videos. Uh, a guy that's got a team out of Sacramento. And he was a registered open door buyer's agent. And, you know, they would send him buyer leads and he'd pay a referral fee. And he sent me a video of the back end of open door. And he said, Hey, check this out. They just changed the, um, you know, how they manage the logistics of sending out buyer leads. And instead of me paying out a 35% referral fee, now I'm only going to get paid 18% of the gross revenue. And all I have to do to get that 18% is get on Zoom with the buyer when they need an advisor to help walk them through it. And Opendoor built a team of showing assistants to open up any lockbox in the city. This, that's a pretty, pretty you know, radical shift in the way brokerage um, could get done. And these marketplaces like Opendoor, Redfin and Zillow could, I mean, be very well positioned to radically change the future of this industry. And it could happen very, very quickly. And my opinion, would you agree with that? Do you see a massive shift in the way business is going to be done? Definitely. And, and, you know, the other thing is I I think that, you know, even Eric Wu, who's the CEO of Opendoor, he's been really public about the idea that at some point, he believes that the fee that we earn, our regular commission, he would like to get that fee down to zero, make the actual transaction itself the loss leader. They're making their money on the ancillary businesses along the way, mortgage, title, all those things that are that are along the way. So, yeah, I mean, none of none of these things are surprising to us. Like, like you know, Frank alluded to earlier in Phoenix, we see it all first. So we're you know we are that open door broker in, in Phoenix. So I you know I have the same same experience there. It's wild, you know, and they even pay my agents on an opportunity. Let's say it's um, what they call list with open door. So when a customer goes to list with open door and uh, they get an option to see what they they could they can compare their open door offer to a go to market option. So the open door representative presents the open door offer. My agent presents a go to market option for the customer and the customer decides which one they want to go. If the customer ultimately decides to go with an open door offer, which they do more times than not, um, they still pay us a fee just to just to have that phone call with the customer. Do you see the iBuyers expanding into smaller markets outside of like the top 50? Yeah, we're already starting to see them. I mean, they... You know, I mean, they they definitely want to get into all fifty states. I, I for a while there, we didn't think we'd see them in cold weather states for a while, but they they're now in all cold weather states. Um, you know, making their way up through that that East Coast. So, you know, I I, I think you're going to see them everywhere. And whether it's iBuyer like the size of Open Door, or it's you know local iBuyer in those markets. You know, Chris like that little We Buy Ugly Houses guy. Those guys are iBuyers. You know, by definition, that would be the same same strategy. Um, you know, that's a 35 year old company. So, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. I just think that the, that the world now has almost been, uh, I, I like to say that we've been like attacked by Amazon. And so now we all want this instant gratification. Like we're just trained to it as consumers. And, you know, the only thing left that isn't instant in our world is real estate in a lot of markets. Right. So now 
I think by demand is that people, customers just want this kind of instant gratification. And I'm not suggesting like it works for every customer because it doesn't, but in a lot of cases it does. And, you know, if we're the, if we, if the customer calls us to represent them and they want to see what these options look like, and we don't bring those options to them in a market like mine, that's just saturated with this instant offer language. Um, you know, we lose credibility at the kitchen table instantly by just bringing them a good. Well, because they probably option. have other offers sitting there they haven't told you about in the kitchen counter. Right. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think there's like the? the I guess. Um, do you see the death of the real estate agent on the on the horizon? I wouldn't say I'd see the death of the real estate agent. I I think that you know they your the, the death of an agent as we know it. Yeah, I I think that we certainly are going to have to change. Um, you know, I think that there's there's still a subset of consumers that want that concierge level service. And so those of those of you guys that are practicing in that higher end price point, um, you know, luxury home, et cetera, like I can't see these guys penetrating that concierge level type service uh, anytime soon. That's not even on the radar. But for the common consumer, um, you know, I mean, Redfin, I think, has proven now that you can operate as, you know, with salaried agents and you know, that is, that's kind of changed the landscape for, for a lot of us here. So like I've switched all of my team over to salary. So they're all salaried agents and they earn a fee per file, but that's, that's simply just how, how we operate. So I think, you know, we haven't eliminated the human in, in, in the process yet. And there's the customers still need someone to kind of guide them along the way. But I do think that like through automation, through technology, through all these things that like our value has certainly been decreased and therefore, our rate by which we charge has to go down a little bit and there has to be some sort of adjustment. So, I mean, ultimately the role of the agent is getting very, it's getting very narrow and much more focused into being just more of a subject matter expert and advisor. And these technology platforms like Redfin, Zillow, and Opendoor are helping accelerate the um, uh, likelihood agents are going to get, not replaced, but their roles you know, substantially diminished. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the way these companies are measured are different than the way you and I measure. Like we measure by dollars and cents in our bank account and open doors now being measured by, you know, how many submissions they get on their website, how many consumer eyeballs they've got on their page. And then it's that net promoter score, right? So right now that those net promoter scores of all the big three iBuyers is greater than nine. So it's just north of nine. That means nine out of 10 customers that use the product would refer it to a friend, family member, or loved one after they've already transacted with them. So the likelihood of that customer coming back to a real estate agent without trying to go to one of these companies without us in the future first is probably pretty low, right? Like I think that that customer, once they go there without us, they're gone. There's, there's a lot of people probably listening now and saying to themselves, well, what happens in a down market? How do these guys survive? What's your, what is your, um, what's your response to that? So, you know, the, I think we got a little taste of that in, uh, during the pandemic, right? The beginning of the pandemic. And what we, what we quickly kind of looked at was that, that certainty actually gained value in a, in a declining market. So as property values are decreasing, the value of certainty, I actually think it increases, um, you know, and so customers are going to be more willing to accept these offers. These guys have giant balance sheets now. So groups like Open Door, Offer Padzilla, they have giant, giant balance sheets. So they can afford to carry assets on those balance sheets. And 
you know, whether the home is REO and it's owned by a bank or the home is owned by Open Door, it kind of doesn't matter, right? And so I think what you're going to see is they're just going to gain market share in a down market because that value of certainty goes up. The likelihood of a customer saying, yeah, I need to get out and I need to sell like now um, goes up and you're going to have more customers taking those offers. And it, the tale of like how long it takes them to sell is going to take longer, but they can afford to do it. They can afford to put these homes on their balance sheet and hold them for a year or more um, in a lot of cases. So, A lot of the banks across the United States have been holding on to mortgage notes uh, that they have not been getting paid on. And there's, you know, a backlog of uh, people in default. <clears throat> um, when, when the government allows banks to start foreclosing again, um, do you see, that that pipeline of uh, deal flow. Do you think the banks um, will work out a deal with iBuyers Direct, or do you think these deals will hit the courthouse steps and there will be an opportunity for, you know, your typical investor out there? I think I think two things. One is you, we're certainly going to see some deal flow at the at the local investor level that goes out to to the auctions the way that we've previously seen it. But I think what we've got now that we didn't have in that first downturn is we do have this, you know, this new asset class, which is single family for rent. And groups like we represent here in Phoenix, so like Pagaya, for example, they're leveraged by JP Morgan. So they took their $20 billion they've got of equity and they leveraged that $20 billion with a group like JP Morgan. So now every Chase deal that comes across the table, right, that's now in default. Well, JP Morgan's already lending to these guys, right? They they know they've got an off case for for all of these assets. So those conversations have already been had. Like there there is offtake for these properties to be turned into rentals. So I think what you're going to see is less REO, a lot more being sold directly to institution that is, you know, eventually turned into single family for rent. Hmm. Dan, I want to ask you um about your consumer-oriented process of how you're staying competitive now, knowing all of this in Phoenix of like the message, the consumer hears, how they respond, how the leads followed up with how the, how the, uh, um, agent goes out on the appointment. Um, just for, so everyone knows, and I want to give Dan a plug here, Dan, you actually train in depth what we're going to go into right now with uh, I real estate pro, right? Tell the audience really quick about that because we're going to go down a path now that there's a whole bunch of training you could buy from Dan on this. So tell everyone about this and we're going to go down the path of how you, the consumer experience doing business with you. Yeah. So, you know, we, uh, we created iRealEstatePro uh, almost two and a half years ago now. Um, and what we, the, the real, real thing behind iRealEstatePro is like, I'm, I'm a believer in the industry. Like I actually believe in real estate agents. I believe in our industry. And so I wanted to, I wanted to change the way real estate agents thought about iBuyers and technologies and teach them how to leverage these things in their business versus look at them as a threat. And so that's the basis of our training in, in, in iRealEstatePro. Um, and to answer your question about like our flow, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Um, you know, what, what, what happens in a customer environment when they come through our doors, we, you know, we, we break up the listing presentation into two, two separate appointments. And so a customer comes in, the first appointment that we go out and meet them, you know, as soon as they raise their hand is we go take pictures and we call this kind of our fact finding mission during our first appointment. And we're going out there to take pictures to understand the condition of properties. So what I learned, like working with all the iBuyers is that the more data that I provided them, the better the offers became. 
or the more educated the offer was, right? I hated the idea of like get, presenting an offer to a customer and then having them retrade the offer after the inspection period. So I wanted to get the most educated offer in front of my customer first. And so by providing the pictures and what the other document that we use as a property condition report, I'm able to mitigate some of those, some of those errors. And so, you know, we, we, we start with that. So we go get the off, we go get the pictures, we go get the property condition report. And then the third thing that we get is what we call our adult permission slip or our exclusive right to solicit offers agreement. Um, I don't, we don't make them sign a listing contract with us until they're actually going to list the property. So what I get though, is I get them to sign a uh, exclusive right to the solicit offers agreement that says that they can't sell their home within the next 48 hours while I'm collecting all of these offers for them on their behalf. And the agreement expires as soon as I present their offers to them. So, you know, my agents, after they've taken the pictures, got the property condition report and this exclusive right document, they come back to our office. They submit to, we have one tool we call Donna. And so they submit to our Donna tool. And then what Donna does is Donna, Donna goes out to each individual iBuyer and all the technology companies and, and solicits an offer on behalf of our agent for the client. And so they, they submit to all of, these, all of these options at one submission. So they submit through Donna one time, and then they get all the available options through that tool. And these are real offers. So I know there's like some tools out there that you get some, some computer generated thought of like what an offer would be. This is like a true to, true offer directly from, you know, so for submitting to Open Door, you're getting an offer directly from Open Door or OfferPad or whoever it is. Um, so the all the offers go back to the agent. And then we've got a tool where the agent uh, puts those all of those options on a, a very simple net sheet. And so that net sheet is the listing presentation. So, you know, the net sheet is covers everything from traditional sale, iBuyers, all the institutions, any other technologies that we want to present to the customer. All of those options are presented to the customer one by one at a second appointment. And, you know, it's, it's, it's this process of elimination. We just go over each available option to market and we share those unique consumer value propositions with the customer. So, you know, if it's, if it's offer pad, like one of the, one of the keys that we share when we're presenting an offer pad offer is we'll share with them that their offer, their offer price includes a free local move. And we say that to them so that they go, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. And I'm like, well, it is a big deal if you're, you know, in town and you're going to move across town, like you're saving yourself four or $5,000. Like you're not thinking of this today, but the day you move, it becomes a bigger, bigger situation. And if that's already paid for in advance as part of this transaction, like that should matter to you. Um, so what we really educate our agents on is to know these iBuyers, know the technologies, know these key consumer value propositions inside and out so that they can solve these customer problems before they even know they have them. And ultimately the customer decides, right? We don't, you know, my, my, my agents are not salespeople. I would say they're very much, um, they're just kind of, uh, advisors. And so their job is to just share all these available options and let the customer pick. And, you know, it varies, Frank, like sometimes it's, you know, 50% of the time they're selecting an iBuyer instant offer option. But markets like today, where they're getting a ton of money in the retail market and they don't have a ton of places to go, a lot of the customers are listing the property traditionally. So, you know, the, the idea of the instant offer and the idea of leading with I have a buyer is really just the hook. The hook is, hey, I'm going to give you this option. Ultimately, what we know about the customer, though, is that they do want to sell or they would potentially sell. So if I compare all of these things and we can eliminate those as an option for the customer, 
Now we're left with the traditional listing option, and that's why we end up with all the listings. I think what you're doing, Dan, is brilliant. I've told you this before. And because you've nailed the message that works from a marketing standpoint, why don't you paraphrase maybe what you say in a letter or what you say in the TV commercial, what you hear on radio, or even what your telemarketers are saying on the phone? Paraphrase for the audience this message that the consumer is hearing with the tip of the sphere that gets them to say, yeah, here's my information. I'd like to receive all my offers. All right. Yeah. I mean, paraphrasing, it's, you know, submit your property to easystreetoffers.com. We're going to share with you all available options in your market and let you decide as the customer. That's really kind of the, the ultimate message. And that really resonates in Phoenix because people are getting a gazillion different options. And there's no one jumping ahead of them like the Trivagos to kind of compare them all as there. No, and the iBuyers don't, you know, the, this is why, you know, I created iRealEstate Estate Pro because the 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 agent is the ultimate aggregator, right? We're the, the all of these technologies, what they've done for us is they've actually created a really powerful position for us as real estate agents to be the ultimate aggregator of all this information, right? If a customer is sitting in our market, they may not know about the knock option, or they may have never heard of easy knock. Um, maybe they've never even heard of like open door offer pad, right? But maybe they have heard of Zillow and they've just got the Zillow offer. Well, Zillow can only get the Zillow offer. Zillow can't get an offer from open door. Zillow can't get an offer from offer pad, but you as the real estate agent, you can get all of those available options, present all of those options to the customer. And I think that's what gives us the most power. Like that, that actually makes us the most powerful player in the space is that we have access to all of them where independently, they only have access to their one their one trick. So while they have all these, you know, unique consumer value propositions that get tacked onto their offer, they're still really just a one trick pony. And we're the ones that have all these options to us. So that really, that really makes us powerful. Let me drill you with some questions, uh, just basically A or B when it comes to marketing. So we can give some people some direction with regard to like getting a response from a homeowner. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to direct mail, do you prefer letters or do you prefer postcards? Letters. When it comes to postage, do you prefer first class or the bulk rate? We, you know, we prefer the first class if we can afford it, but uh, it depends on how much mail we're sending. So bulk will work, but I, you know, if you can get a stamp on it, do it. How much mail should someone send if they're going <clears> to <throat> play the direct mail game? If and how not, often? Yeah, if you're not going to send, you know, in a market like our size, I can't send less than thirty thousand pieces, Frank. Like I got to send a minimum of thirty thousand pieces. My hit rate's going to be just north of one percent. Let wow. me throw one more question specific to that. So some in some markets across the U.S., you have higher turnover rates of homes than others. Um, how much does that play into the ability of, you know, direct mail working with this offer? You know, so for us, Chris, like, well, what I like to do is like, we, we're very sharpshooter in, in, our, in our tactics, right? So if I'm marketing to absentee owners, my letter is tailored to absentee owners. Like it's very specific to who I'm marketing to. Um, you know, like I can tell you our number one lead generator is from landlords that have leases expiring in the next 120 days. If I can hit that list every month, month over month of landlords with leases expiring in the next 120 days, what I know about them is they've got a lease expiring. There's some sort of event that's going to happen. They either have to relist the property. Maybe they're going to, you know, re-rent it to the current tenant, put it out to the market for tenants but something's going to happen. They have an event. 
And if I can be in front of that event and provide them all of these options in advance of that, my hit rate's pretty high on that kind of stuff. So I think it's about like defining your audience and then figuring out like the message directly to that specific audience, like solve their exact need. How many different like messaging splits do you do in your mail? So you have that audience. How many other different messaging splits do you have? Yeah, four to five, depending on the month, like what we're actually looking for. But four to five different marketing splits that we're, we're hitting specifically. Wow. You know, because I okay. think your your message to a to a landlord is significantly different than the message to a person whose home you're talking about. Yeah. Right. What about the radio and TV? Um is there maybe a CPM rate or an impressions for the week or certain stations that you prefer? Yeah. I mean, for us, like we, we've really focused on like the streaming products. So, um, you know, the, the rate is significantly lower if you stay away from local and just go with your streaming stuff. So through like Hulu and, and, um, and so you're not doing broadcast, you're not doing real TV, you're doing a stream like people watching over their, um, Roku box or whatever. Yep. Yep. I mean, we, we do have done the local, but it gets really expensive and, you know, seasonality plays into that too. So for us, like, you know, it's obviously super hot right now. So it's over a hundred already. Um, you know, we're, we're going Roku at this time because a lot of people have left the area and so they're just not here. Um, whereas like seasonality, if they're here, they're in their hotels, they're, they're doing whatever they're doing here. I'm going to, we have a lot more population in the winter than we do in the summer. And so when that happens, then I'm going to hit them on local television when I've got the most population and eyeballs on it at that time. That's so really Hulu insightful. And Heroku basically over OTT is being, is, is, um, very, is really effective for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the, the key is, you know, you can actually geofence them now, Chris, like you don't have to like, you know, TV, the reason I didn't used to do TV was because it was like blanket marketing, right? I was just casting this giant net and I would say, okay, I hope, I hope I catch my fish in the net. Well, now, like if you and Frank are neighbors, I could send you a specific message or a specific commercial and I can send Frank a completely different message through his Roku or, you know, Hulu device due to geofencing. So now that we're getting into geofencing, like we can get really pinpointed in our messaging for the right customer at the right time. Do you know what your cost per thousand is on that? You know, Frank, I don't know exactly. Um, I, I'd have to look, but I think that, you know, we get somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75,000 uh, impressions through, through for, per month at $20,000, roughly. Okay. I can run a calculator and figure that out later. <laughs> My head hurts. Okay, like cool. It's about $3, $3 cost per thousand. And then when it comes to calls, I mean, how many people are your guys speaking to a day just doing outbound saying, hey, want to buy your house? Yeah, so they they need to call minimum is 600. So I try to get them a call between 600 and 1,000. just depends on how many conversations they're having. Um, so, you know, an ISA in our office, they have to hit a minimum of 600 dials in a day. And are they getting people answer the phone? Is that still working? Chris and I are kind of going back and forth on this, testing it out. We don't know. Yeah. How's it working for you there? Yeah. So two ways. One is like we use our CRM tool to kind of warm up a lot of our leads, right? So we're, we do a lot of voicemail drops. We use text messages through the, through the CRM um, and email through the CRM. And so like they're getting a hybrid of like leads that are super high intent and also people that have been long tail that we're trying to, we just sent specific message to and they did respond in one way, shape or another. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if they're just direct dialing, let's say they're direct dialing landlords with leases expiring in the next 120 days, 
um, the hit rate's pretty solid on that, you know, because we're not calling and we're saying, Hey, I'm Dan Nome. I'm the greatest real estate agent in Maricopa County. My message is, Hey, you know, I've got a buyer that wants to buy your house. And like, this can be tested. I, we, we tested this exhaustively. I think you, you, know, you guys both know me, I'm a nerd. So I, I tested this like consumer idea at, uh, at a gas station. And I just started walking around the gas station to people that like the gas station was full. And I just started asking them if I could buy their car. Right. I just said, Hey, can I buy your car? And when I did that, 70% of the people that I surveyed at this gas station told me they would sell me their car. Right. So they just, they said, yeah, sure. How much you want to pay me for it? So I said, why don't I apply that same thinking to real estate? Why don't I just tell them I got an offer for their home and I'll just apply the same methodology to this. Cause I think that there's a price for everything and they just don't know. And those investors that we talk to, they're willing to have those conversations. So, so they're more likely to, to be willing to sell than someone that's like emotionally attached to the home. And here's the big difference, man. You have the confidence to do that because you have the institutional buyer and you can do it ethically. Whereas if you didn't, you're doing it unethically. It was lie as a bait and switch or you're doing it where it's like, this is really not legit because all I have in my back pocket is a lowball investor, you know, 70% of what it's worth. Or uh, this one family I'm working with doesn't want to buy this house. So yeah, but I think any agent, you know, in, let's say they're in a market with where there's an I buyer operating. I mean, you you can have, have use that same messaging in that market. You know, I think that that's that's a fair message to that customer. Say, I've got a buyer that wants to buy your house. His name just happens to be Open Door. You know, I've never. You're the first person I've met that put their agents on salary that doesn't have uh, doing internet lead generation. So I've heard, obviously, you, you know, Redfin puts their agents on salary because the website generates so many leads. No one else I know that has done that except maybe some of the guys spending a ton of money on like internet leads. And they got in really early. So a lot of the stuff is SEO. So it's not so expensive. Yeah. So we, we pay them, uh, they get $2,500 a month. So that's their base. And they make $1,000 per transaction. And doesn't matter price point. So, you know, and it doesn't matter who the buyer is. So if the buyer is an institution, I buyer, you know, go to market, whatever it is, um, they get $1,000 on every transaction that they do. Our average agent does 10, a minimum of 10 a month. So they're getting, you know, 10 additional sales a month plus their base. And so for them, that, that, that works pretty consistent. And as long as they stay true to the process, they're, they're making, you know, 12 to 15 grand a month, just. Just by, well, plus probably mileage too. Do you have to pay mileage? Yeah, we pay some mileage and then we cover all their back office expenses. So once it gets into contract, um, you know, they don't touch the file from contract to close. So they're, they're front end only. Um, I really just want them out doing what they do best, which is presenting offers. And you don't ask them to bring in any of their own business? No. I would assume. It's all provided by the 65 Gs a month you're dropping in generic leads. Right. Do you have any people on staff calling through the database to follow up with leads? Yeah, so we have we have four, four ISAs in our office, and they're they're constantly checking in with the database too. So are they blended? They're doing outbound and inbound. Yeah, so in the morning, you know, they're in the morning they're hitting kind of the hot leads that came in throughout the night. They kind of spend the middle of the day, um, you know, lunch hour doing referrals and talking through kind of the database of people, and then evening time is when they're back out, kind of doing direct dials, outbound marketing in that way. Chris, what are you going to change in your business knowing what you know now after this interview? Anything going through your mind? I, I want to see, because Chris is out there with his face on everything saying, uh, you know, what's the message? Uh, the guaranteed offer, get an offer fast. 
something yeah, like that. Multiple, multiple offers in three days or we'll sell it for free. Yeah. What's going through your mind as you hear this, Chris? I want to get some perspective from you. Well, um, I mean, I, I mean, when Dan was telling me about making the switch from the Noma Group to uh, Easy Street Offers, I was like, "Damn, yeah, that takes bold. brass balls. That takes some balls." Could you man. imagine doing that in Austin with your name? You know, the thing is, ditching like, the I'm, whole brand and going to something else. The thing is, I, I wouldn't be afraid of it. What's that? What, what you know? What sucks on the flip side is, like, you know, I walk into restaurants and people see my credit card and they're like, "Are you Waters with two T's?" Because, you know, all my it's like a little jingle on all my stations. The guys are like, hey, you have to call my friend Chris Waters. That's Waters with two T's. You know, it's part of the you know the script on the radio. And so, like, I just I have so much brand equity in this market. You know, um, you know, we did we did just under a thousand transactions last year, about 60 percent, 60 percent listings. You know, we're a pre, I'm a premium service. So we charge, you know, a lot more than the average agent. Um, and so, you know, I do the things that crossed my mind are just, you know, how's my profitability going to be affected? Uh, um, yeah, but the other thing that crossed my mind is like, man, this, this industry is changing really, really fast. Um, you know, I've been through your IREP program, Dan, and, uh, it's, it's amazing by the way. I also had multiple people on my team go through the program and, um, you know, I've, I've referred all 17 or I guess 19 of my franchise partners through IREP now. And um, so they all understand the, you know, the process of pulling offers from the iBuyers, putting them on that spreadsheet, you know, the two-step listing appointment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing going through my mind is like, um, is my call to action uh, on the radio of multiple offers in three days or all self-free? Is that better than, less than, or equivalent to what you're running on radio? Um, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I don't know. One of the most brilliant things I saw Dan, uh, an agent do, was their, um, they still kept their brand name, but they formed a separate LLC um, that went off to the bottom end of the market. So homes on the lower half below medium price with a very hard, I'll buy your home investor message or totally has nothing to do with being a real estate agent, even though the real estate agent owns it, it's still going out to the marketplace saying we are this entity and we'll buy your home. And um, they disclose it. It's probably in the bottom somewhere. What, and then um, on the Frank, website, you're referencing the guy in Portland rocket offers. There's several. Yeah. yeah. Hatch air catch. He's got the, yep. uh, so what they'll uh, do is they'll form a, a separate entity or a DBA on their current company. I'm not sure maybe how it's structured, but yeah. they'll basically separate create their DBA. own com- create create their own competitor more or less. Yep. So it's you know a separate CRM or a separate lead source, but you're like these types of leads have to be treated very differently <laughs> than the leads that come in this way. Um, and that's been successful because they find that when they go out to the market with the, I want to buy your home offer as an agent, it's very confusing to the consumer and the consumer reviews it because probably just because a real estate agent's a low trust industry on like all the consumer, what, like down with car salesmen when they do all that stuff. Um, it doesn't resonate. So when you strip the agent off, you get a better response. 
Any thoughts on that, Dan? Or do you see people doing that or your thoughts and maybe how the regulation insights of how you do that? Yeah, I love the um, I love the message. I, I think that, you know, the way that we started with it, it was Noma Group powered by Easy Street Offers. So it was just powered by. And it was amazing how many heads got turned as soon as they were like, well, what is this Easy Street Offers like tack on? What is that all about? Um, it was, you know, successful enough to where we just kind of pivoted away from the Noma Group and just straight use Easy Street Offers now. But I think, you know, to your point, Frank, like that can be that can be a difficult jump for a team. But I can tell you, like what we've never done or have been able to get successfully done is saying that we are the person that's submitting the offer. Right. Because it's really hard to go to a customer and provide the offer and have it coming from you or from an entity that you represent. Um, And then also say to them, well, here's the offer. And oh, by the way, I can list your property too. And I could do that for this fee. And I'm the greatest listing agent in town. Like that we found to be really, really difficult. So for us in this process, what we found that was that was best is that we just kind of became agnostic to all, all of the options. So we don't, you know, we we tell them that, like we're very vocal about the fact that we are. And we say, look, you know, like all of these things are great solutions. We just want to make sure you see them all and and provide them. So I think, you know, an agent that doesn't want to just like jump into this, because I, I do think it's like one of these things, like you jump off this, it's almost like flat fee. Um, you jump into flat fee, I, I don't think you can go back, right? Like you're kind of, you're a flat fee guy forever. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, across the United States, there's people at, operating at a very high level, selling thousands of homes a year, using, you know, the team centric model. Um, more of like, a, like what you would expect in a traditional corporation. Um, in Atlanta, you got Mark Spain and Tennessee, you got Gary Ashton, Minneapolis, Chris Lindahl, you know, there's some powerhouse groups doing thousands of deals. Um, so it's like, it seems like, you know, there's, there's a, uh, there's a place for these powerhouse teams to push the name. And then there's a place for, you know, DI buyers. Um, so you know, man, I tell you what, like Frank, that question you asked me, the one thing I'm reflecting a lot on right now is like, holy cow, I am, <laughs> I cannot imagine getting started in real estate, like brand new right now, you know, like with ambitions of wanting to build a big real estate company, because it's, you know, the, the barrier to doing that is just getting bigger and bigger by the day. Um, you know, it's just getting more and more difficult. So, you know, to the point earlier about agents, you know, their roles getting more narrow. I mean, it's, it's beneficial to the consumer and them, you know, you're ultimately going to probably do more than you could. But for those people that are getting in this industry from an entrepreneurial perspective and trying to build a big business, it's pretty tough. I think the most brilliant part of your model, Dan, and I've said this to you before that no one quite gets maybe because I don't know, they're not as brilliant as me. I don't know what the reason is, but (laughs) the most brilliant part is the two-step appointment because anyone can go out to a market saying, Oh, I have a buyer. I have all these buyers. Call me. Okay. I don't think there's much competitive advantage to that. Um, and, you know, obviously you want to have the backup of the institutional buyer, but still someone can go out there and bait and switch that, you know, but someone's going to call and they're going to be skeptical. Be like, what, what is this? And you've lowered that skepticism by having easy street offers. God help you if you look like an agent when you're doing it. Right. So, you know, you still have that skepticism. Like, what is this? You want to buy my house? You got these offers for me. What's, what is this scam you're running? And you have the perfect response to that. It's like, yeah, well, let me come out to your house. I have nothing to sell you. 
I just did take a bunch of photos and measurements to actually get you a legit offer. And I'm going to go submit it. <laughs> and then I'm going to come back with all the offers. That's going to give you the most accurate offer. Or I guess I could just give you one now. But once you go under contract, it's going to be adjusted. Would you like me to come out and get the research that I need to get you like an accurate offer? And everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And boom, you have the appointment. I think that's the, the two-step appointment system of the research first before you submit the offer is, is, is the game changer in your model. Yeah, we, you know, we, we tell the customer in advance, we're like, look, I mean, I can get you, I can get you an offer without seeing the house, but they're going to assume that, you know, when, when, when we're assuming stuff, we're going to assume that it's in the worst condition possible. Like we assume it has to be replaced as we're underwriting for the, for the offer. So why don't we go actually feed the machine, give it good information, and then you're going to get the most educated offer. And, you know, once we share that kind of horror story with them, they're, you know, they're, they're good with it. I can tell you, they do get anxious. Like a customer does get a little anxious. They want, they want it now. And so we're, we're 48 hours, 72 hours in some cases, but we're hundred percent close rate from the first appointment to the second appointment. So I've never had anybody tell us that they didn't want Say us that to again, show You're a hundred percent close rate from the first to second appointment. Cause everyone would think, Oh, I'm going to lose it. No, but they're getting the exclusive right to market offers for those couple of days though from you, right? We are. Yeah. So we yeah, make them sign that. So that, that gets them a little sticky. Um, and it's, you know, they, they, a hundred percent of the time they let us come back and present the offers. Like they, they know that that's part of the process. We talk about it from beginning to end. Like that's their, that's the hook. They know that that's what they're going to get. And so from first appointment to second appointment, we've never been denied access on the second appointment. Now we've had customers, of course, not transact with us. I mean, at the second appointment, I'm not suggesting we're hundred percent close rate on our, on our listing side, but at least I'm getting there and I'm getting out to this customer. They're taking some solution from you. Yeah. We're getting out there twice. We're educating them. They come back into the CRM. I mean, whatever that happens is like, maybe they're more long tail kind of a seller. I mean, all of those things happen. So, um, but at least they're, they're letting us show up and we're getting there twice. So now I'm, I'm building rapport twice versus an agent that's getting out there once. Dan, some people, some people are probably wondering on the tech side, what are you using for CRM that does voicemail drop and text? Yeah. Email. Yeah, we use Chime. So we use Chime for all of our for all of our backend. You love the Phoenix companies, man. All your vendors are the Phoenix, aren't they? <laughs> a lot of them, yeah. A lot of them. If I was you, I'd just buy a stake in them. <laughs> <laughs> just buy it right there with you. No, Dan, it's no, it's great, man. No, and what are you doing with your money? Like the money you make, like you obviously aren't buying real estate because you're personally not gonna buy something with a three three point five cap rate. Yeah. What are you what are you investing in? You know, man, we do. So I buy I buy flips. So I buy like high higher end flips. We buy like that seven hundred plus flip range. So the the stuff that's outside the iBuyer marketplace, like we are the iBuyer in that market. So if a customer comes to us and they've got a property that's outside of our outside of the iBuyer institution buy box, the offer they get is mine. Um, so I buy those and then I buy a lot of rentals and you'd be surprised like what doesn't fit in the buy box for some of these clients, right. Or unique stuff. Like let's say if it's a property and maybe it has an unpermitted addition or garage enclosure or something along those lines, well, like that, that wipes it off the table for institution. But for me, like I'm just renting it. And if I'm getting my yield, um, I'm okay with that. So, you know, so we, we actually do buy the stuff that they don't buy. So we, we end up with a, a bunch of different things that they don't buy, um, you know, but I've invested in some real estate technologies and some other things, but um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's, it's all real estate focused stuff. I want to ask you a question about your direct mail. How big is the total addressable market that you can mail for a farm in your County? Like you were to say, here's the whole enchilada. Um, how big is that market that you would spend money direct mailing? It, I would say that it's probably half a million inside of our buy box. Half a million. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, the biggest we've ever sent, um, you know, is we'll send 150,000 pieces a month. That was our biggest, that was our biggest, that's our biggest spend. And that would be like, if we get a client that's got just a huge bogey that they, they need us to acquire a bunch. So when the chips are down and you have to deliver for these iBuyers or these, or these uh, institutions, you go to the uh, the oldest weapon of mall in marketing of mail. Direct mail. Yep. Hit them. What provider are you using, Dan, to help you with uh, disbursement? Yeah. So we've, we've got a couple here in Phoenix that we use. Um, but I mean, an agent in any market, I mean, you can go get a bulk mail stamp through the USPS and actually operate using a bulk mail stamp that way. Uh, but the the house that I use here, um, they're called Better Direct. And what they do is they they actually process the mail. They print it. They put it in the envelope. They send it out to the customer. I never touch it. The only thing I send them is the data. And I send them the templated letter. And then they take that from... And I want to ask you, when do you go bulk versus pre-sort? So we go bulk, you know... <sighs> I would it's a big say, decision. yeah, it is. It, it's tough. I would say that, you know, we're going bulk, uh, if it's anything over about 15,000, if it's less than 15, then we can probably afford to go first class and put a stamp on it. But, uh, but in most cases I would say we are, we're going bulk. And you'll wait the three or four weeks before it hits. Yeah. We'll it takes a lot longer before that mail actually goes out. It does. Yeah. And it's random. So, you know, it's not like you can prepare for, a slew of calls coming in on a certain day. It's, yeah. you know, some areas get the mail, you know, in a week, other areas to get the mail in two weeks. So you just kind of don't know which day they're going to get it. Hmm. A little unpredictable, but you know, we see a lead every day through it. Right. So you get a lead all the time. Well, I don't really have any more questions. I mean, Chris, what else do we want to know for the listing lead show for Dan? <laughs> have a lot of money for leads generation. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the, the key barrier to entry. You know, let me ask you that question, Dan. Dan, how did you get all the money? How did you get to the point, you know, to spend 60 G's a month? Yeah. Um, because that is really the competitive advantage. I'm sure everyone listening would love to do what you're doing. And they could do what you're doing, but they don't have the funds for Legion. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, when I think back to like when we started all of this, you know, I, I didn't have it either, but I had... Um, I had some, I had enough credit cards and, uh, you know, a few closings that I was willing to put up, push all my chips in and, and try it. Um, you know, for me, it was like, you know, put all the chips on the table and just go. So like we'd flip some houses and, you know, I, I have some other businesses in the area. So we, we make some money that, that way. Um, but I think, you know, I, I just kind of look at like, I, I, I'm a, subscriber of broker metrics so if you guys look at that you can kind of really get some data like what's happening in your marketplace and in my market the same 10 people are at the top of broker metrics every month month over month the same 10 people are at the top and those 10 people are also the same 10 that are actually spending money in the market so i think it's uh you know for us it's in our market in our market like phoenix like you just have to be willing to spend and and put out the risk in, in hopes that the return the returns there. And I, you start getting really comfortable with it. 
I've asked you this question before. I got, I got into real estate investing with my wife about two years ago, and I started clicking on some Facebook ads of some guys that are like, oh, I'm I'm wholesaling or doing real estate investing. And now I log into Facebook, and I swear to God, all it is is just everyone hawking me everything to like be in real estate investing. And I check these guys out. It seems like every single one of them are in Phoenix is where they're based. <laughs> what are these guys doing that you're not? I mean, I, I hear all these stories of all these. And again, I never met any of these individuals. So it's all, I don't know if it's truth or not, but it just seems like everyone is just getting, get rich quick in Phoenix off wholesaling. Yep. What's the deal with that? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we've got, we've got some of the biggest um, kind of wholesale groups in, in our markets in Phoenix, of course. And, you know, a lot of it's education, Frank, that they're selling. So it's a lot of it's like, they're not actually transacting. What they're talking about is like a deal so that you hook into their environment and then, they now hook you in. Were there like daisy chaining wholesale contracts with like three or yeah. four people closing from one person to the next person? Right. Which is a slippery slope. You know, we just, we never got into wholesaling. So that just isn't our, our business. But, um, you know, it's perfectly legal here in Phoenix. You can, you know, tie up a property and then sell that contract to another buyer, subsequent buyer. Um, and so Even if you're unlicensed, isn't that, is, yeah. couldn't that be construed as brokering a house? You know, I, we, the department hasn't cracked down on this. I know in some markets that they have. Um, some departments have actually looked at this and said, you know, technically you're a dealer or you're acting as a broker. Um, but in our market, you know, they're, what they're, they're all labeled as real estate investors. So they're going to a seller and they're saying, hey, I'm going to give you a cash offer on your property. They tie up the property. The seller is, you know, doesn't doesn't know enough to ask them for a proof of funds. And if they do, it's probably, you know, a hard money proof of funds that they've got from a hard money lender. Um, once they've got the contract, now that contract has some sort of value and they just try to find a buyer like us to buy that property. Like our challenge has been getting to the person that actually has the contract. And, you know, a lot of times they'll get these and they've been daisy chained by two or three of these investors um, and everybody's trying to make a fee along the way. And then I can't even transact because now I don't know who, who actually I'm transacting with. Yeah. So that becomes a challenge. So, you know, I, I think you're, yeah, you're seeing all kinds of different, uh, different messages out there. I can tell you that like right now, because of the competition from the institution and iBuyer in Phoenix, that the, the wholesale environment has gotten really, really difficult. And I'm seeing these guys get into like trailers and land and, you know, product types that we just don't even play in. That's what they're looking yeah. at. I mean, that may be the opportunity for wholesalers and real estate agents in the future are, you know, these things that are out of the buy box for your typical iBuyers like ranch properties and mobile homes and lots, du maybe duplexes, fourplexes, maybe stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dan, I won't take up much more of your time, man. That was a good hour and 15 minutes of you just laying this down. Has been a this has been one of our best shows. This has been no, great. it's a, because it's, a, it's really intelligent is we're talking to a self-proclaimed uh, self nerd <laughs> that has been geeking out for 20 years on real estate that has had institutional money backing the empirical evidence of testing what the consumer wants. And I think if somebody did not take this interview seriously, they're an idiot because you're out there every day with the consumer with big dollars, you're listening. And if you notice to the whole interview, everything was the North Star, just like the CEO of Zillow says, is the consumer, isn't it, Dan? That's it, man. We just, the consumer's speaking out there. We just have to listen to them. They're, they're definitely yeah. talking. I'd encourage people that are listening to this to, to listen to it twice 
I, I remember um, I was in uh, New York at the Inman conference with the founder of Y Lopo. And he said, hey, do you want to go to this cigar bar? There's this guy from Fidelity and some real estate agent out of Phoenix that sells like 2,000 houses. And I'm like, whatever, whatever. The dude probably has like, about like 100, 200, 300, 400 real estate agents, some big brokerage. And um, anyways, uh, after getting to know you, and every time we've talked, I, I mean, I pick up a little little nugget every single time we talk. And um, your that program you created, uh, the IRAP program is amazing. It's incredible. And anybody that's watching this, number one, listen to this thing twice. And two, you're an idiot if you don't go sign up for IRAP. Number one, it's super cheap. I, I use that term deliberately. Like, I mean, really, you really have to not, something's not, you have to focus on the need of the consumer. And there's so much value here that you dropped in. I, I recommend to every viral client when they come in here and they say, hey, I need a listing acquisition strategy. Well, I tell them to go to iRealEstatePro, Estate Pro, iRep Pro. And I think the headline on your website, let me look it up, iRep Pro. Hold on. What is the headline you chose? Thing I'm finding it is, oh, the number one listing acquisition strategy in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He's a guy that could probably back that claim, can he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's pretty uh, pretty ballsy to use that, Dan. Anyways, Dan, thank you so much for your time. I want to thank yeah, everyone for listening today. Uh, subscribe to the Listing Lead Show. Uh, we're up on iTunes, all your favorite podcasting stuff. And hopefully you guys listen to this and you get some good solid insights you can carry with you to your business so you guys can grow and uh, live rich, successful lives selling homes. Dan, thank you. And Chris, as always, good to see you, buddy. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, guys. Bye, everybody. All right, see, see you guys. Take care. Bye-bye.